I think the most valuable thing to do is have a mantra, really to get something to come to your head. I, mean, I have sons, so. Right. And for one of my children, the mantra was, he's not out to get you. <laughs> because <laughs> you end up in that flash. It doesn't matter what age, you start to feel like, I've got to win this. It's so true. I'll right. scare you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ariel Charnas, and this is In-House, my podcast about all the happenings in my life. Whether it's fashion, entrepreneurship, marriage, or mom life, you'll hear it all right here on In-House. Hi, guys. Welcome back to In-House with me, Ariel Charnas. My guest co-host once again will be my fabulous cousin and proud mama, Candice Miller. Today's guest is one that we're sure you will love. Her name is Dr. Tova Klein, and she's an expert on all things toddlers. She's even known as the toddler whisperer. She is the director of the Barnard College Center for Toddler Development and a psychology professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and the author of How Toddlers Thrive. She has been steeped in work with parents and toddlers for nearly three decades and considers the toddler world a toddler-topia. As a mother of three herself, Dr. Klein conducts research on early development, including parenting challenges and work and family issues, children's play, sleep and separation, and child trauma. Hi, Dr. Klein. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. We This is a very big topic for me and my followers and then, of course, for Candace and her daughter's age group. So we're really excited to learn more about you. Let's start off with hearing about your career and what drew you to wanting to studying children and toddlers specifically. You know, I'm truly one of those people who could say my whole life I've been drawn to young children partly the joy, partly the curiosity, but also just the difference between every single child. So on the one hand, you could say, oh, what do we know about, you know, name the age group? What do we know about infants? What do we know about toddlers? What do we know about five-year-olds? But the range of what each child does or how they make sense of the world is, has always attracted me. So that's one Two is I taught preschool when I was in college. I was an assistant teacher and it was very eye-opening. And again, what I realized was I was always drawn to these children who are kind of marching with their own drums a little bit or a little bit to the side or a little harder to understand, um, which is what got me into psychology. And I worked with homeless children living in shelters with their parents early in my lifetime outside of college. And I thought, wow, some of those children are really protected and seem to be doing well. And some of those children and parents or lives are not only hard, but they're really not doing okay. And I had worked with children who were abused. And I just kept saying to myself, you know, what is it that protects them? And that got me to parents, right? Who protects children, even when times are really tough. And in college, I had the pleasure of just timing, being in college when attachment theory, the scientific attachment theory was just getting popular. And there were a lot of scientific studies of attachment. And so I got to actually film strange situations and work in the field. But looking at each of these strange situations saying, wow, that's fascinating. Every parent's different, every child's different. So that's what got me to grad school and got me into clinical psychology and developmental psychology. And then I landed at Barnard, honestly, right after graduate school. And I will, to be truthful, I said, I'm not going into academics. I want to work directly with children and parents. And here was this opening at Barnard, a toddler development center and a psychology faculty position. It was like the perfect melding. And 
that's what I continue to do to this day. I work with toddlers, parents, wonderful college students, and an incredible staff, you know, before the pandemic, during the pandemic, after the pandemic. Right. That's wonderful. And I'm sure during the pandemic and obviously currently, you're dealing with a lot of cases of anxiety and, and socialization that I think many parents, you know, out there are are having to manage right now. And I'm just wondering, what is your advice to all of these parents who have these kids at home for the majority of the past two years? Um, it's been such a struggle. Uh, and, you know, socialization, especially I'm assuming, you know, at early phases like this, in your in toddler development, I that's like key, right? That's why we send them to programs. It's why we send them to classes. We want them to socialize um, and, and make friends and, you know, learn those cues. And so what do you suggest to parents in this crazy world that we're living in currently? Crazy, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, I've had the pleasure, the challenge and the pleasure of running a program for toddlers, basically two and young three-year-olds, you know, through the original shutdown all last year, we were, we actually, thanks to Barnard College, we were outside in a beautiful tent through the whole winter. It was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge for the teachers. It was a challenge for the children until it wasn't, which was like helping parents know how to dress children. We all learn. And now through a continuing pandemic, and also I should say that I'm working on a study where we've interviewed over 100 parents um, of children under the age of eight about the experience of being a parent in the pandemic. And so then I work with parents one-on-one and parent groups, um, which go from toddlers really way up through elementary school into teenagers. So I feel like I've had this front seat as well as my own children who are a bit older, teenagers and older, this kind of front seat about you know, well, what do we do at each stage? And and now that it's kind of dragging, it's the best word I could use. And so the first thing I would say to parents is, you know, the most important person or people to a young child are the parents. And even though parents have been stressed, even though families have had loss, you know, whether that's financial, people they loved, um, home, whatever the losses are and the stress, of the unknown, of the uncertainty. Parents have been there and they've been loving their children. They've been feeding them. They've gotten them through every day. That socialization is more important than anything else. Um, I say this as somebody who runs a twos program, but if you think about what toddlers need in a program, it's not all those classes. I'm sorry to disappoint anybody. I've been happy that children's lives have been scaled back, that less is more. Um, not happy about a pandemic, but happy that there's just a little less rushing and a little less complication. Because what children really need, honestly, to thrive, you know, it's the title of my book, How Toddlers Thrive. So what do they need to thrive? They need some stability. They need some structure. They need parents who love them. And that's happened through the whole pandemic. Maybe you had to move or you weren't sure if you were to move or somebody lost a job but you could still get bedtime put back in there. Maybe not at the beginning when we were all at loose ends and really ungrounded, but breakfast, lunch, and dinner being served every day and bedtime, there's your immediate structure. And the parents being there consistently. And the parents are there for them. 
whether the parents were stressed or on the computer in the middle of the living room or whatever else was going on, they were still there. And what's your advice on handling tantrums in toddlers? I mean, I just had to carry my child home from school screaming and crying, lying on the elevator floor. And everyone in the lobby was just looking at me and I was just like, I'm I'm sorry. Like, I don't like really know what yeah. to say. But what like what's your advice on handling these kinds of tantrums? Because I get mixed. I, like my mom was like, you were punished and you had time out in your room. And then, you know, when you wa- you look at there's like some um, psychologists, social media accounts and, and that I occasionally look at and I take it with a grain of salt. But they say things like you you want to, you know, console them and hug them and not let them feel alone in their feelings. But when you're so irritated, it's very hard to be nice, you know? So I'm just curious, which way, what, what's the answer? I just, I'm laughing thinking you would like to be alone in your feelings at that moment. Thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> exactly. Look, you did, you did what you had to do, which is, you know, if it's a public moment, you need to get a child removed from a situation or get them home. And that's what you did. That's all. So if you think about what is a tantrum, you know, the toddler brain or, you know, even the young elementary school children, their brains are pretty underdeveloped, particularly in that area that handles emotions. And so they go up very quickly. You know this if you have a child who shows a lot of joy. I mean, that's fun when they're showing a lot of joy, but they can kind of go over the edge sometimes. But children have big emotions, right? And you see this term a lot these days, big emotions. What does that mean? Well, what it means is as children come up around two, they move from a sort of limited range of what they experience to a sense of self, like, hey, I'm my own person. I have my own ideas. And that then becomes limits. Who wants a limit? None of us do. Right. Who wants to be told no? Or you're, the child's overtired. But either way, when a big emotion comes, frustration, anger, sadness, they don't necessarily know what that feeling is, but their brain kind of skyrockets. And the part of the brain that can handle those emotions is very, very, very immature because it's supposed to be. That's brain development. So every child is different, right? And one of the I think challenges uh, or roles of a parent is to try to get to know your child as best you can. Nobody's going to be perfect at it. So, you you know, you figure out what are sticky points for a lot of children that's transitioning. Maybe they're tired at the end of a school day or their friend wouldn't play and they've just had it. And so the piece to think about is how do I help my child over time learn to handle these emotions? And in the moment, it depends on the child. That's what I'm going to tell you. It's just not the answer probably right. you want. It's but different for, no, it's different for everybody. It really now. is. So at that point, they can't be reasoned with at all. Like if you think of right. it like a, um, I always think of it like a waterfall. I know it's a podcast and people are listening, but you know, if you can see my hand, it's like going up and down. I mean, they've, they've just gone over the edge. There's no reasoning. There's no, so I, you know, parents say, well, I try to cajole her out of it and it doesn't work. No, because they can't think straight. So should you leave, like if it were at home, should you leave them alone or should you sit with them and just yeah, not do I was going to say, it's pretty scary to leave a child alone because then the message is when you have these big emotions, which are valid, child, you're emotions, alone. Yeah. I'm abandoning you. So some children absolutely need to be held. If you have that kind of child who you can pick up and scoop up and say, you're mad 
you're angry, I'm right here for you. And you could kind of feel their body come down, you know? Yeah. Other children are screaming for you to get away. They don't really want you to get away. Cause if you, if you do that human thing to say like, fine, you want me to leave, I'll leave. They're going to be scarce. So a parent can say, I'm right here. You can be angry. I'm going to let you be angry. I'm right here. And then the child runs their course. But you can right. put limits on a child. Sometimes you're going to say, she runs around the house. She throws things. She's, you know, there are limits to what a child could, you don't want them to get hurt. It's not a free for all, right. um, but that can be holding them. That can be giving them a place to throw something. They need to get it out sometimes. So, you know, having like a small waste paper basket and giving them something, say you're mad, throw this, throw this hard, you know, something to right. hit. And it's, it's such a challenge for parents too, because, you know, and even if it's not a toddler and it's a, you know, a child who's eight or nine or in their teen years, you you're so like as a parent like it gets like frustrating and you want to you know do the right thing but you also are like i need to like take a minute because i can't you know react in a normal way in this moment i think that also like it changes probably right like for what the parent should do based on the age group like if you have a younger child they obviously may need you more even though they say they may not but like if you have an older child they may actually need that alone time. And that may be very valuable to them. Yeah. And you can also, as children get older, the good news is they get more reasonable again, slowly over time. And they're less reasonable in these tense moments, but they get more reasonable. They have more cognitive abilities. Those are the thinking, you know, language abilities to communicate, communicate, to, I mean, I could just give you an example. I have three sons, you know, good kids, but they all have all been teenagers. One still is. And there were times I would say to one of them, like, uh, you might want to reconsider how you've said that, you know, like I could remember one of them walking out of the room and coming, you know, like, like you're in a huff, I'm in a huff. And I could say to myself, I better like take a step away. That's such a patient, calm response. I'd be like, what? Well, it starts what out that way. Say? And then you realize over time, that's just not going to work. Right. You know, like if I yell back, which you know, we're all capable. We all do. But then it became like, all right, I've got teenagers. They have a right to be pissed off, even if I don't like it. Um, And as a parent, it's hard, you know, again, whether they're not so much at two, but, you know, as they get a little older and, and they grow up, you think, who are they to say that to me? And you can exhale and say, hmm, I was 12 once too. So back to your point, a parent has to know themselves. And what we all need, what every listener needs is this ability to say, I need to exhale. I'm just going to walk over there for a moment and even turn my back and take a deep breath. And then I think the most valuable thing to do is have a mantra. And I sometimes say to parents, this probably seems so simplistic, but really to get something to come to your head. I mean, I have sons. So when they were little, I would, my mantra, and it would come right to me was he's just a little boy. He's just a little boy because it kind of regrounds you. Right. That's interesting. That's good advice. Sometimes, it, you know, it can be something like she won't be little forever. And for one of my children, the mantra was he's not out to get you. <laughs> because <laughs> you end up in that flash. It doesn't matter what age you start to feel like I've got a witness. It's so true. Yeah, right. you. It's so true. And then you step back, you're like, okay, this is a 10-year-old or this is a two-year-old. You know? <laughs> so I think mantras are very That's helpful. Funny. And when they pop into your head, 
you either smile, but you recenter. And as an adult, we have right. to recenter and say like, okay, I'm dealing with a much younger being and I need to now center myself in some way. And then you can go back and you're like, okay, honey, you can be angry. We're not having that for dinner, but you're allowed to be angry and you just have more energy for it. I was just wondering what you think about working moms. I know a lot of moms listening um, are either wanting to go back to work, uh, wanting to work full time, wanting to work part time, trying to like figure out the balance of what will, you know, be okay and still okay for their kids where their kids won't, you know, it won't be to their detriment and they wouldn't be doing anything wrong by going or, you know, pursuing their passions outside of the home. Um, I know that a lot of young moms, um, like uh, moms with younger children per se, that like just don't know if it's the right thing to go back to work um, because they want to be there for all of those moments and they don't want their kids to miss out um, on that bonding time. So I just, I'm sure that you've had a lot of experience with that with parents. And I would love to know, you know, what you think about when should moms go back to work when, you know, what are the things that we could do with kids to give them those habits and rituals that, um, and are those habits and rituals important to, and that consistency important to um, showing them that you're also present at home, but also able to work? Yeah, it's a great question. So look, I'm a working mother of three children. I've never not worked other than, you know, like maternity leaves, vacations, So, I mean, this has been a question for, you know, several generations now. I also am on faculty and teach at Barnard College, which is a women's college. So, you know, the discussion, I feel like I have it at all levels with parents, with really energetic, bright young women. So here's the way to think about this. What data shows us over and over is that a mother's kind of, emotional state or well-being is what children feel and read and are nourished by. There's no such thing as working is good, not working is good. It just doesn't exist because relationships are humans, right? A mother and a child are humans. And you've probably heard this phrase, a good enough mother. Winnicott in the probably 1940s coined, I think is a little coined the term, What children need is good enough. And bonding takes place in infancy, right? It's from the moment that child comes into the world, you know, you give birth, you adopt a child, that child comes to you in some way. And that's the beginning of an attachment relationship, which is not even measured until the first year of life. You need to sort of time, but you don't need to be together 24 seven. And the pandemic complicates that right? You don't need to be together 24-7. Do we need better maternity leave policy in this country? Yes, because if you don't have any paid time off and you're working, that's hard to bond with a baby. It doesn't mean you can't, though. But beyond that, if we're talking about toddlers, children never measure relationships in time. Now, you know that because if there's two parents in a family and um, one works longer hours than the other, it's not that the child has a better relationship with one parent. It's just not how it works. It's really, you know, we use this term quality and I think it's a little bit abstract. Well, how do I know it's a quality relationship? What children do is they internalize that relationship. Remember they go to school, right? Or they go to childcare. They might be gone 
from eight in the morning till four or five in the afternoon, they have mommy or daddy carried within them all day long. I have children for two hours and we have a family photo for each child. It's like Velcro to the wall. They can take it out. of. Some children carry that around like under their arm. It's the sweetest thing. And they just kind of, they're like, I got mommy and daddy here. We have dolls, you know, little, I don't know, a few inches high so the children can clasp them. And, you know, inevitably they'll pick up a mommy and a daddy and they'll put them together and they'll smile and then they'll put them down. In other words, they're thinking about mommy daddy throughout their day it's not like out of sight out of mind that's the furthest thing from it it's in their heart it's in their soul and that's called a relationship now is it hard to be a working parent and a parent yes and does every working parent I know feel guilty yes but guess what every stay-at-home parent I know also feels guilty yeah everybody feels good I mean it's such particularly for women we have been trained to be perfectionists somehow. I don't know why, how evolutionary, but we have been. And so there's two things to let go of. Guilt won't help, period, end of story. It just doesn't help. But there's no such thing as perfection. And yet we all look at our firstborn child and we want them to be like the embodiment of us. If you're good, I must be a good parent. And when you're being yourself and you're being rotten, I must be a bad parent. And nothing could be further from the truth. If your child can show you all their emotions, here's the good news about your tantrum earlier today. She feels safe enough or he feels safe enough to say, look, I can be really, really, really angry. And at the end of this, I trust that mommy's going to pick me up and say, wow, that was really hard. I still love you and give me a hug. It's it's that repair that matters yep. more than anything. So what does this mean about a working parent? No, there's no perfect time to go back to work. The pandemic complicates that. What I do find is very, very hard for children is parents working at home. And so pre-pandemic, I would say to a parent who had a child who was two or more, you really can't work at home. That's not fair to them. You're there, but you're not available. Well, that's just not a reality. I wouldn't say that to any parent now. I would say if you're surviving the day, great, give yourself a clap. You know, your child's fed somewhat and they're sleeping soundly. Look at them, smile and pat yourself in the back. But that work at home thing is really complicating what's already hard in a pandemic because parents are home, but they're not really available. That's a very mixed message to children. So if you have any, if you have a garage at your house, work in your garage. If you, at the point that we can go to coffee shops, soon again, like we were, those lines being clear, which is why when parents go to, when a mother goes to work and says goodbye in the morning, here's who you're going to be with. You know, this is the person taking care of you, whether it's grandma or daddy or a caregiver, and I'll see you at dinner or I'll see you at pickup. You're, you're telling them I'm leaving, I'm coming. And then you're there. But the most important thing, if you have the luxury of choice, is that Moms are doing something that they want to be doing or want to enough. None of us love every part of our job by any means, um, but that you're fulfilled so that when you are coming home and you are tired and the weekends are exhausting, you can enjoy your child for some part of the day. And I've always said this, but in the pandemic, I want to put it up a level. If you're having some moment of shared joy with your child during the day, it can be as mundane as, you know, the bath which can also be an unpleasant time, but, you know, a shared joy or cooking something or putting them to bed. And there's some shared joy 
that's a good relationship. If you have several moments of shared joy in the day, great, more power to you. But don't be hard on yourself about it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I say that as somebody who's raised three children, I can look back and I think, why was I so hard on myself at those points? Like, even I should have known better. But as a mother, if you want to do it well, we tend to be too hard, particularly when our children are struggling. I do want to reiterate to every mother listening right now what you said, because I find that to be very helpful, that it's not about time. It's about the mother's well-being. And I think that's a great mantra for for mothers just to remind themselves that, you know, go out for that dinner or, you know, go on that date with your husband. Because if you don't have that, you know, like just feeling that happiness within yourself, then that's really what is going to affect your relationship with your child. It keeps your sanity. I mean, like, I think we all need that. A thousand percent. We all need to almost step out of the picture for a moment. Especially the not, the moms who are stay at home. Yeah, you need to step out, take a minute, and you know whether it's talk to friends or you know be with friends or be with your husband or your partner, whoever it may be. That I think is is very important to have that time alone. Have something for you. The well being of the mother is probably something that we don't talk about enough. You know, there's a lot of concern about the pandemic and children and anxiety and depression and things like that, but. If we could refocus and say, parents are stressed, There's how could you not be stressed in a pandemic? And people are making a lot of decisions. Where do I want to live? And you know, for parents who aren't working right now, maybe you were before the pandemic, or maybe your children were really young or newborns, and you weren't. But the question of, should I go back to work, really needs to be reframed around financially, what do you need? Maybe you have no choice. That's fine. And if you're, again, lucky within that, you'll find work that's fulfilling enough that you feel good. But whether you're working or not, if that mother is so stressed because she's being hard on herself, because of the tasks on her plate, whatever it is, that's what children read and feel, particularly your firstborns. If you have multiple children, they're like sponges. They're like, and what do they do? They say, what's wrong with me? They take the responsibility. They sure do. And your first one's for sure. Yeah. They kind of buffer the other ones. As well. Right. So taking care of self is really key. Now that for some people that might be, you know, let's say the That's mother is staying at home and the father's going to work. And then the father comes home, whether it's coming upstairs from the basement or coming and mommy gets to take an hour to go for a walk or meet with a friend if you're comfortable doing that at this point. But that idea of what do I need? I think women, when we become mothers, we can actually not only forget about, but we don't know. Because all we're focused on is the children's well-being. Like I don't even. Not good. You know, you, I know you have children who are older, obviously. So you have experience that runs the gamut from, you know, infancy to adulthood, essentially. Um, And what would you say, based on your knowledge, is like the age where they do become independent? And, and what happens? Like, what's that phase like? And, and how do you make those transitions as a parent? The parents? That's a great question. You know, there's, I, maybe I don't wish, but I say, I wish I could say there's a stage at which you say, well, that's independence. But it really is this gradual road. You know, I think of it as 
a young toddler, so one and a half, two-year-old is just putting their little toes on the path, right? So one moment that child's like, no, I do it myself. And they're pushing the parent away. And 10 seconds later, they're screaming, help me, help me, right? So that's the beginning of it. And, you know, then you move into the elementary school years, uh, the middle school years, each time you go through a developmental shift, there's a transition. So a little more independence. I think if there's parents with older children listening, you know, you can remember the first time your child, you know, maybe walked to a neighbor's house and then maybe to the corner store to, to get milk. That's a big independence thing for you know, younger children in apartment building, going down to get the mail is a big deal. You go down, you have the key. That's really powerful. You do it. The doorman waves you, you go back up. <laughs> so each step is independence. I'll be sending my youngest to college next year. That's a huge step towards independence. But at every stage of independence, the child retreats back. They want to know you're there. So, you know, your child goes off to college, they'll call or they'll text or something at what might seem to me like a really weird time. Like, why is he texting now? Oh, because he just wants a touch point, right? And so four-year-olds do that, eight-year-olds do that. And so I think for parents to know each time the child moves out in the world or the teenager or the young adult, they're still your child and they still need to know. You're going to be there if I want to come home for the weekend. You know, can you take my call? You know, my, my FaceTime, whatever it is. Because they're always children. And yet as a parent, the hard part is letting go. It's very hard to let go. And I'm sure that every listener is thinking, no, 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 we're ready to let go. We've been with children 24-7. <laughs> and yet, you know, as I helped parents and children separate this year, um, we had last year in the pandemic, but this year we had longer in the pandemic in September. Parents are happy to see their children doing really well with separation. And yet there's a sadness of letting go. There has to be a sadness if you care about your child. And so for the parent to say, that's my sadness, I can handle that and not put it over on the child at any age is a challenge. It's a real challenge to be aware of your own emotions. This was such a fun conversation. I feel like I learned. I have like oh notes. I took like two pages of notes. Seriously, thank you so much. And uh, I want you to just share with everyone where they can follow you, the name of your book, where they could purchase your book. Okay. Yeah. So I have a book. It's called How Toddlers Thrive. You should be able to get it at any good bookstore or certainly online. And I do have a website, howtoddlersthrive.com. And I am on social media at Tova Klein, Instagram, and, and there's a How Toddlers Thrive Facebook page as well. And you do one-on-ones with families? People could... I do one-on-ones with with families all on Zoom these days or phone, depending on what people want. In the olden days, they were in person. And I do some parent groups. I've been doing an evening group for elementary school age kids, which is great. Oh, wow. um, and I hope one day they'll be in person. But yeah, they're on. Zoom's a yeah. gift. In Hopefully soon. <laughs> like, I don't love it, but yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Klein, thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Candice, for being an amazing co-host. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Please come back for more as we welcome some new guests to the podcast. You can reach out to us with any questions about the podcast and who you would like us to bring on. DM us on Instagram at Something Navy. See you next week. That's a wrap for today's episode of In-House. Thank you for listening. 
We'll be back next week with more thoughtful discussions and amazing guests. Make sure you follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And of course, follow me at Ariel Charnis and at Something Navy. See you next week.